Our scripture reading is Psalm 118, verses 19 to 29. Give attention to the word of the Lord. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Many years ago, I served as a youth pastor. I did that for a long time. Uh, One time I thought I would just do that. I loved that job. Then uh, 12 and 13 year old boys started getting on my nerves, so <laughs> so I went back to school. Well, in those days, in uh, youth group meetings, of course, we'd have some time for prayer. There'd always be time for prayer. And w- what we would do is everyone would share whatever they wanted to pray about. And some of those requests were, uh, well, what you might imagine a 12 or 13-year-old praying about, any old thing, you know, some crazy things. Of course, I would say, if you're praying, nothing's crazy, ask for whatever you want. The Lord's going to give you what's good for you no matter what, and that's not really the point. But... In those days, when I heard one of these crazy prayer requests, I would ask a question. The question was, uh, what do you want God to do? So often we pray in this sort of vague, general way. We just pray We say we pray about, we pray about the situation. We're not really imagining something God might do in response to this prayer. So we're not very specific. And perhaps that's wise. Maybe we should just leave that up to the Lord. But I would ask this question, well, what do you want God to do about it? Let's ask him for that. And 
then I would sometimes ask a second question, and maybe this is a little bit mean to the kids, I don't know, but I wanted to respect them and treat them like I would anyone else, but in any case, I would say, what makes you think God would do that? There's another way of asking this question. What if he's not interested? Now, I know we go around teaching everyone all the time that God is 1,000% interested in every little thing that concerns us. How do we know that? What makes us think that? What if he's not interested in this thing that so interests me? I want to ask these questions kind of generally today. What do you want from God? What are you looking for from God? What do you imagine God should give you? And what if he's not interested in that? Because what's going on in this text this text that we think of as a great celebration of Jesus, which in a certain sense it was, is a bunch of expectations that are bound to be disappointed. And the question we want to ask is, what are they looking for from God? And is God interested? Well, let me just read the text. It's John chapter 12, verses 12 to 19. Here's what it says. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. You might recognize that from the text of Psalm 118. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And that's a prophecy from Zechariah, I believe. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. <clears throat> so this is, we learn, the next day. The next day. Oh, this is the next day after this great dinner in which Mary uh, exhibited her insanity 
that wasn't as sane as it looked, wasn't as insane as it looked, and indeed was not even enough of a recognition of the greatness of Christ, even though it was as extravagant as possible at the time. And then there was this argument with Judas who said, she, she's just throwing away a giant resource that could be used for some good. And Jesus says, it's a recognition of my death. There's nothing of greater value than that. We read, I think, in the book of Mark, one of the other Gospels, that this is the moment in which Judas sort of determines to betray Jesus. He was not happy with Jesus' response. So we might say he's the first example of someone who is looking at Jesus, thinking he must be the Messiah, and then turning against him. In this text, there's a huge crowd. I, I mean, think of it. Lazarus has been raised from the dead. Jesus has come back into the area, and there's a big gathering in the whole area for Passover, and they have this Sabbath dinner, and people hear about it. They hear that Jesus is there, and Lazarus is there too. Huge crowds gather. And the next day, they, Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, which is a fulfillment of this prophecy. And these people think, he, this is him. This, this Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. And they go out. And they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. This is something you shout to Messiah. Save us, save us, save us. That's what that means. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're saying Jesus has come in the name of the Lord. He, even the king of Israel, they're saying he's the king, he's the king, he's Messiah, he's the Christ. He's the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They're all looking at Christ. This is four days, or five maybe, depends on how you count, before the death of Christ. What happened? What happened? How do we get from Hosanna, Hosanna, to crucify him, crucify him? That all happens in the next uh, six or seven chapters in the book of John, though a big portion of that is what we call the, the uh, upper room discourse, which is just a conversation Jesus has with the disciples. But what happened? Here the Pharisees are going, look, everyone's going, everyone's going, we got to do something, we got to do something. And in the end, no one is standing with Jesus. His very best friend.
friend on this earth says, I don't know him. How do we account for this great change? Well, these chapters, I mean, today we're getting sort of a preview of how we account for this, and we're going to see it play out over these next chapters, especially 12 and the first part of 13. But I just want to look at this and ask this question, what do they mean, Hosanna? You see, even today, a lot of people want to recognize Jesus, but what Jesus are we talking about? And it actually really matters. Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Savior, Jesus is sacrificial lamb. And he's not that interested in whatever role we come up with for him, apart from those. So what do these people mean when they shout, Hosanna, save us? What kind of savior are they looking for? Well, we can see some clues here. They're very focused on his being the king. Your king is coming. He's the king of Israel. He's the one who comes in the name of the Lord. What is the salvation they're looking for? Well, I think we could determine, first of all, they're looking for a political salvation. Messiah is the king who restores justice. Righteousness in government. Righteousness in the world. Don't we often think this way? That if we just had the right people in government, everything would be fine. <laughs> it's like we think if we, had, if we elected the right guy as the president then uh, we, we'd all stop dying. I don't know what we think, you know, but we put a lot of hope in political salvations. They, they were too. I think they were also looking for a national salvation. So Messiah is the king who will cast off foreign oppressors and vindicate Israel. He judges the nations he restores our national identity. And that's the sort of salvation they were looking for. The problem is a problem of Roman rule. Salvation is deliverance from that. I hear a lot of this these days, too. When people quote promises made to Israel from the Old Testament as though they applied to the United States, or this or that, or whatever country they happen to be living in. Second Chronicles 7.14, I just want to cite as a prominent example, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, and I will hear from heaven and I will heal their land. And we think, well, that means if all the Christians in America decide to start praying and living right, then God will make everything right in America. But that scripture is not intended for that purpose. We're looking for some kind of national vindication. 
that God is simply not promising. And these folks were looking for that king who would throw off the Roman rule. Another thing we would say about the salvation they're looking for, the Messiah, the Savior they want, is it's the temporal. It's a restoration of the blessings of this life. It's a return of the good life. Uh, the good life maybe, but more so. Messiah should bring those blessings. It doesn't think much past the end of life into eternity. And then finally, the salvation they're looking for is a vindication of their own righteousness. Messiah will duly recognize our good law-keeping. That is the Savior they're looking for. That tells you that they think they're good law-keepers. You know... I think in the world, this is mostly what Jesus gets. People mostly see themselves as more or less acceptable to God. (laughs) Jonathan Edwards said, almost every natural man that hears of hell flatters himself that he shall escape it. I, I can think of thousands of people who are worse sinners than me, so... I must be good. And God's a loving, forgiving God after all, so, you know, he'll be okay with me. But if you offend me the wrong way, I don't think he's okay with you. I might even use an expression like, go to hell. I expect God to judge even trivial sins with other people, but I think he's good with mine. I am looking to God, if I'm looking to God to vindicate my own righteousness, I'm afraid I'm going to be sorely disappointed. That's what these people were looking for, a vindication of their righteousness. They were the people who kept God's law, who paid attention to his word. You know, I know a lot of Christians in this category who expect something from God based on the fact that they go to church, they pay attention to the Bible, maybe they pray often or try to do right. They sort of think God will one day vindicate their righteousness. All in all, what these folks are looking for is a great person. And I mean a great person. Uh, An Abraham Lincoln squared. A great, great man who will do whatever he does, who will raise Israel to the status God has promised them of a great nation in the world, the the second Solomon, the second David, the, the, the... the one who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what they're looking for, this great man. 
a great king who through his great wisdom and his uh, empowerment by God Almighty will put everything right. Well, Jesus is going to sorely disappoint them. He's not that sort of great man. And if you want that kind of savior, if you want the kind of savior that will make everything right in your country, or make your country great again, or whatever, or will uh, restore justice in government, or will solve whatever little problem you've got, like make you rich or keep you healthy, or will somehow finally, after all these years of no one else recognizing it, recognize what a good person you are, Jesus is a disappointing Savior. I don't find God by looking up. Martin Luther developed this thing he called the theology of the cross. Where do you find God? human person? Where do you find the Savior? You have to look down in the deepest pit into which anyone has ever gone. And that is the cross of Jesus Christ. You cannot find God by looking up. When you look up to find God, you will find he is remaining invisible. No one has seen God, John declares. The Son has made him known. And he is made known most clearly in the absolute humiliation of the Roman cross. That's where you find him. And if you're not looking for that one there, you're missing it. Jesus is the answer, so often we say. What's the question? In fact, we say Jesus is the answer as though it doesn't matter what the question is. If you have a problem with your wife, Jesus is the answer. If you have a problem with your banker, Jesus is the answer. If your government is abusing you, Jesus is the answer. What if Jesus is not addressing those questions, but a, a much deeper question, a much more important question, the question that is at the root of all those other issues? Jesus is the answer, but no one's asking. That was Martin Luther's observation. 
No one's asking the question that Jesus answers. There is nothing us natural human beings will see to be good about the cross of Christ if we are not awakened by the very Spirit of God to see it. If the path of Christ gets to the cross, why are we following him? That's insane. Except it addresses the very heart of all things. Jesus gets himself killed. That's basically my summary answer to what, how do these people go from Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna to crucify him, crucify him, crucify him? How do they do that? Well, Jesus doesn't do all those things they're looking for. Instead, he gets himself condemned to die on a cross, a Roman cross. That is, you cannot think of anything that is more the opposite of casting off the Roman oppression. He is a giant disappointment. Immediately following this, he starts talking about how he's going to die. I'm just going to, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I can imagine all these people going, Messiah can't. In fact, right in this text in chapter 12, they say, the Messiah can't die. They pose that argument to him. Nobody admires the capital criminal. And that is what Jesus makes himself. So that's not the question. He's not answering any of these things they were looking for. What was he doing? He's not providing my idea of salvation, which is uh, don't let me get sick or die or fall into poverty. Those are my ideas of salvation. And the scripture teaches that the Lord, in fact, will let me get sick, will let me get die, will let me die, will let me fall into any number of kinds of suffering on purpose. He's not just allowing it, he's bringing it. What kind of savior is this? Well, here's what kind of savior he is. He brings true salvation. And true salvation is a salvation that reconciles sinners to a righteous God who otherwise must condemn them no matter how trivial they think their sin is. You see, my sin is nowhere near as trivial as I think it is. And neither is yours. And of course, I sin because I separated myself from God. I broke relation with God. I turned away from God, and so I can't help myself sinning. It's 
just my nature now, because I am disconnected from the source of any true righteousness. And what Christ does is reconcile that relationship, that spiritual source of all real life. What Jesus offers is not an insurrection against Rome, but a resurrection from the dead. What Jesus offers is not the vindication of one nation, but salvation for all the nations. Jesus is not here to offer us a better life. This is so often how we think in America, for which I apologize to all the other nations. We think that Jesus came to make the good life even better. That is such pure hogwash. He didn't come to give me a better life. He came to give me life, abundant life, eternal life. Apart from him, I'm dead, no matter how good he might make my current life. And Jesus did not come to vindicate anyone's righteousness but God's. You see, God has a problem with his own righteousness because his righteousness demands judgment on us. How can he forgive me and be righteous? Only in the execution of his righteous wrath in the cross of Christ. The whole book of Romans could have this title, How God Saves His Own Righteousness. God doesn't come to crown my righteousness. He comes to <laughs> show his own. And, of course, Jesus was not a great man in any commonly accepted idea what it means to be a great man. He got himself killed like a murderer gets killed. That's the opposite of greatness. Jesus is a person of perfect humility. No one is below him. He goes down and down and down and down. You, there is no one beneath him in his death on the cross. He gives perfect salvation. <laughs> he reconciles us to God. We can 
Read, I encourage you, with that in mind, go read the first eight verses of Romans chapter eight, or chapter five, Romans five, the first eight verses. Go read it today. As soon as this is over, go read it. Where we learn that because we're justified by faith, we're also reconciled to God. That is salvation. Because it is only in fellowship with God that we are actually and permanently alive. And except for that reconciliation, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. That is the thing, that is the question, that is the Savior that we actually need And if we're looking for any of these other kinds of saviors, that one will prove disappointing to us. And many people come to Jesus and then figure out Jesus isn't actually the thing they were looking for, and so they go away. And we find out they really weren't one of us because they left. They never really saw him for who he really is. And because we're justified and reconciled in Romans 5, we read, we have obtained access by faith to grace, the grace in which we stand, God's unmerited favor purchased by the cross of Christ. And we're standing, we have that standing before God. And then he says, and we're rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. Here's the thing. If you're not in Christ... The glory of God is something you should dread, not hope for. Because the glory of God will destroy you if you are not in Christ. We're rejoicing then in Romans 5, he goes on to say, we, not only that, we also rejoice in suffering. That thing we were looking for a Savior from, now we embrace as a path of knowing him. Suffering leads to endurance, he says. Endurance leads to character, he says. Character leads to hope, he says. A hope that will not disappoint. The hope in the true Savior is not a disappointing Savior. True hope, grounded in the love of God, he says in Romans 5, poured out by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. How do I know the love of God The Bible says the Spirit has come to live in me. Obviously, he loves me. And demonstrated by this we know. The love. Christ died for our sins. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were sinners, not because we were righteous, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's the salvation that Jesus provides. That's the sort of Savior he is. He's not the sort of Savior that says, I'll give you whatever you think is best right now. Whatever you think that is. Not the sort of Savior that says, I'll spare you whatever trouble you are anxious about facing today. No. In fact, 
in this text in Romans, James chapter 5, any uh, Philippians chapter 3, any number of places we read, no, it turns out now that I know Christ, the suffering that I endure in this life is a point of fellowship with Christ to be valued, not to be escaped. And that doesn't mean I'm going around looking to suffer, but it does mean the suffering that comes my way has a great, righteous, good purpose in the heart of God. This is a hope that does not disappoint. Just to conclude, I would say this. If you got the Savior you were looking for, you would end up disappointed because you would not be reconciled to God. You would still be dead in your trespasses and sins if you got the Savior you were looking for. But because we got the disappointing Savior, we are redeemed. Praise God for our disappointing Savior. Father, we give you thanks for the Lord Jesus Christ, that he gives what we need and not what we're looking for. Lord, train us, teach us, teach us to see the true goodness of Jesus to see the nature of our actual salvation, to let go of all the silly ways we look. Teach us. Teach us to express the love we've been shown. To share the actual gospel and not the false hope of these other types of salvation that people might be looking for. Help us to help people to see the true nature of their condition apart from Christ. Father, we just give you thanks for the unspeakable blessing of reconciliation to you in Christ and by the Spirit. Amen. I just want to uh, say one more thing before we sing the closing song. And that is, you will see in your bulletin, there. it's been there for a while, you'll see uh, each Sunday there's a little section called Discuss Today's Sermon. So I just want to uh, stop for a second and point that out to you and encourage you to today, go, go read Romans 5. Everyone should read that two or three times a week, honestly. But uh, go read Romans 5. Include the concepts that are there in your discussion of these questions. Are people still looking for the wrong kind of, sa of Savior today? And what do they mean? What do people mean when they cry out to God to save them? People do cry out to God. What is it they're crying out for? And then this is an important question for those of us who know Christ. When we try to lead people to faith in Christ, 
do we sometimes offer them the wrong Savior? A lot of our Jesus is the answer uh, witness might be in this category. How would we, how could we avoid that? How do we handle the fact, and this is the problem, how do we handle the fact that people are not asking the question that Jesus answers? Billy Graham used to say, the hardest part of getting someone saved is getting them lost. That's an important idea to bear in mind here. Anyway, I don't want to have the conversation now. Sorry, I just did, but uh, go ahead and uh, talk amongst yourselves. Uh, Use these questions, whatever else comes to mind, whatever else you find interesting or worth discussing, uh, that'd be great.